Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Welcome also to Caroline Pidgeon, Liberal Democrat member of the London Assembly, where she's currently Deputy Chair and previously Chair of the Transport Committee. Welcome, Caroline. Hello, Mark. Great to be here with you. Now, you were first elected to the GLA back in 2008, an election which to the wider world was maybe slightly more notable for also getting Boris Johnson elected as Mayor of London. But that means you saw him up close for eight years whilst you were on the GLA scrutinising his work and he was being Mayor of London. What was what was he like? Well, that's a question I get asked an awful lot, Mark. And there's two sides to him, I think. So let's think of him as a person, as an individual. He's someone who's very sociable. He's someone who wants to be liked, likes to be liked, which is why he cracks jokes all the time. He wants to be the sort of centre of attention and um, uh, want, yeah, wants to be popular, wants to be liked. He will be finding, I have no doubt, very difficult as Prime Minister with a pandemic and you can't please everyone all the time. And he'll be finding that, I think, quite difficult. Um, so he's a character. Uh, he was incredibly popular across London and mm. not in the traditional... Tory voting groups and I remember very early on going to my first people's question time which is an event set in law twice a year the assembly and the mayor go to a part of London hold a mass public meeting where he was adored like a celebrity he didn't come across as a politician he came across almost as an anti-politician this celebrity and this is of course before we had things like Donald Trump and all that sort of right-wing populism and he was there with his colourful language and, and so on and people adored him. I remember a crowd down in Bromley, I'd never seen anything like it and being quite astonished at the time. Um, so he was a big character but he governed London from the centre and certainly to get re-elected. So people forget Boris supported us and, and many on the assembly um, calling for an earned amnesty for illegal immigrants mm. in the country so many years. That, Boris supported that at the time. He apologised for things he'd said in the past that had been anti-LGBTQ. You know, he had really, there were things that um, you may not think he would have, um, you know, proposed and supported, but, but he did. Um, so he governed then from the middle. You wouldn't believe that now with all the Brexit stuff. But as a politician, you know, we always think or were led to believe Tories are great with public money. Mm. Boris, you know, with this, the people he put around him would have been great with public money. Quite honestly, he um, wasted so much money um, in London. He spent £46 million on his pet project, the Garden Bridge, which was going to go across the Thames in central London. Five million on a four runway airport plan he had for the Thames Estuary. Never mind that it was near the sunken SS Montgomery, which is full of explosives. Might never mind that. Um, he spent two million pounds retrofitting his own new bus for London, so it actually had windows that could open because they were. We described them as a cauldron on wheels. They were designed by Heatherwick, who obviously did the famous Olympic um, cauldron. Um, terrible, terrible waste of money. He bought water cannons, secondhand water cannons from Germany even though they aren't licensed to be used in the mainland UK. And Theresa May refused. A, a rare example of Theresa May being the more liberal in a political dispute. Absolutely. Yes. And looking at the evidence, being fact-based and not bowing to the pressure from yeah. the bullies in her own party. Um, but one thing that's a trend and I now see in government is that he always had a sort of casual attitude to public procurement and the rules and always yeah. felt 
he was above the rules in some ways. So when he selected Heatherwick to design the garden bridge, a tender went out, grossly unfair. Heatherwick with Joanna Lum Lumley and others had come and talked to Boris and written to Boris about this idea. He kind of had an idea of what he wanted, which wasn't really what was in the tender documents. Heatherwick got it without any experience of building bridges. He'd even flown to San Francisco, along with Eddie Lister, who's one of his key people in Downing Street, at public expense to try and get sponsorship for Heatherwick's design from Apple. Um, and we've now seen that since with all the stuff that's come out about Jennifer Akuri and his affair with her, um, her going on various trade missions when he was mayor of London, even though she didn't qualify to meet the criteria to go on them, she still managed to go on these trips um, with him and others. Um, so I think that's very similar to how he's behaving now in office, um, where it seems, you know, connections to the cabinet seem to manage to allow you to be awarded with contracts for PPE and the like. So I think there's a there's a clear, um, you know, reflection of exactly what he did at City Hall to what he's now doing at Downing Street. And you mentioned how he seems to like to be liked, mm. which is, I guess, one of the sort of sentences or phrases you find in almost every biography of him. The thing that puzzles me about it, and I wonder what your take on this is, he's written in particular a lot of quite offensive things about other people. And just for somebody who likes to be liked, I don't quite, I can see why carried away in the moment of enthusiasm or in the context of say an after dinner speech, you, know, you can end up saying things that then in the hard light of the print of say a diary column the following day offend people but even when it's you know words that he's written that someone else has then sub-edited etc he's he's left quite a trail of quite aggressive personal you know offensive comments out there for somebody who apparently likes to be liked Yes, but he will think that will make him popular with the majority of people who will find that witty and funny. And I, I remember a um, one of these big people's question times down in Lewisham. And at the time, the government were potentially going to close Lewisham Hospital for a debt that they were having to manage at another hospital in southeast London. And the public were up in arms. So they had come en masse to this meeting. Every question, no matter what subject it was supposed to be on, linked back to the closure of Lewisham Hospital. Mm. And as mayor, if I had been him, I'd say, yes, I'm taking this up with the government. I'm mm. concerned about this. That would have been the easy thing yeah. to do. But he was trying to defend the government and he got more and more heckled and booed from the floor and he didn't know how to handle it. Mm. And he tried on one to crack a joke. And this doctor said, you know, this is about people's lives. This isn't a laughing mm. matter. And he couldn't get the audience on side. And I'd never seen him that frustrated by you know, his usual lines to get a crowd over and whatever weren't working because he just got that pitch wrong and he just couldn't salvage it. And that um, that was quite fascinating to see firsthand. But also anything that was very emotional, very raw. I, I took some constituents to meet him something you never get to do with Sadiq Khan, I can tell you. He'd never agree in public to meet meet you with anyone, I have to oh, say. Really? How interesting. Always his deputy mayor. Never, yeah. never him. Um, but Boris agreed yeah. um, me to take a family to him. It was very tragic. Their um, husband, the father, had died on one of his cycle superhighways. Um, and he was a constituent of Vince Cables. And so yeah. I was liaising with Vince. And the family and the children wanted to go and talk yeah. to the mayor and the commissioner of TfL about the safety of these cycle routes. So I managed to get a meeting. I had people from other parties there as well. 
And he couldn't deal with the raw emotion that here's a family grieving, they have lost their husband, their father. And he couldn't do the basic human touch, hug, mm. anything. He just ruffled his hair and looked completely in pain for the whole of that meeting. Um, that, that's not someone who's going to govern us well through a pandemic when actually the country is grieving, people are dying everywhere. And he, he just isn't able to cope with it, is my reading of it. Yeah, I remember when he was mayor of London, there was, I can't remember what the story was, but there was some story for which BBC London was trying to interview him and he was you know, a usual politician fashion and Perisher thought, you've ever done this when you know it's going to be an unpleasant story, you know, refusing to be interviewed by them. Um, and so they they basically tried to doorstep him within City Hall. And so there was this incident where the camera crew and the journalist were in this corridor and Boris Johnson sort of walked past them and the journalist tried to stop him to interview him. And Boris Johnson just carried on past singing sort of, la, la, I'm not listening, la, la, I'm not listening, in a way that at the time actually quite impressed me because I thought there's something about his popularity at the time that meant it worked. You know, it was almost a sense of, you know, I, he is so popular, he can get away with the sort of thing that, I mean, if you or I did, it would be, you know, uh, you know, a massive scandal and probably and also probably one of the things people would remember about us all the way through to, you know, obituaries in, let's hope, 50 years plus time. But with him, it was just and, and, and I wonder if part of what he suffers from has suffered from is not and particularly in being prime minister, you can never you can never really be that popular for that long. Now, even Tony Blair didn't have that stratospheric popularity for that long a period of time. Is just what you can get away with when everyone loves you. And indeed, what almost works all the better, you know, you know, is actually a real weakness then when you're when you're not you know, top of the pops. Exactly. And I think he'll be struggling with this. I think he'll be struggling. Obviously, he'll be struggling in lockdown because I'm sure his. Uh, uh, other activities he gets on on up to outside of his daily politics and all that he'll be restricted in this lockdown but no I think genuinely he'll be really um struggling to cope with this it's there's no good news you know Brexit is not good um it was 50 50 which way he'd go on Brexit mm. um he took the line that he thought would get him to number 10 and in the end it has I wouldn't say necessarily he would believe that I remember a few years before one of the members asked him about Brexit and uh, all, you know, that. And, and I think he said on balance, he would vote to remain in. That was yeah. only a few years before. It was an opportunist moment. And in some ways, uh, you know, he may live to regret it. But I, I can't see him being prime minister for yeah. long because um, I don't think he's got that strong base around him. What's What also is very similar to when he was mayor. When he started off as mayor, he had lots and lots of um, advisors and deputy mayors who went within months. I don't mm. even remember that. He had several people who went, including he had this guy called Ian Clement, who used to be, I think, the leader of Bexley Council, off the top of my head, who um, w was charged and convicted for credit card abuse. So he'd got a credit card off City Hall and was going out whining and dining um, someone. Um, he lost other deputies. Ray Lewis, who he, he did appoint back again, who all sorts of allegations about him and on record some hideous homophobic comments he had made and he ran uh, a youth kind of academy um, aimed at uh, young black boys 
um, in East London, dreadful, dreadful stuff. Other people who'd had some really unfortunate views, but he lost person after person very early on, which is why I think he kind of clings to people. You see, he's got some of the similar team he's taken from City Hall to Downing Street. But of course, he clung on to people like Dominic Cummings, even though he should have just got rid of him when he'd broken the rules. He clung on to him and then... And, and isn't it amazing that... I mean, it's slightly hard to know when there are rival sets of anonymous briefings in the media, you know, which side to believe. But it appears to be the case that, you know, Dominic Cummings used to boast to friends or colleagues of his about how he wouldn't return phone calls from the prime minister. And you just think, I mean, imagine if a member of your staff was refusing to take your calls and boasting to friends about it. They wouldn't remain a member of your staff for very long, would they? No, I mean, it's it's bizarre. I mean, he's kept some people who are clearly very loyal to him. So you've got Eddie Lister, who was his chief of staff. You've got Manira Mirza, who was one of his deputy mayors. Um, But he's also appointed a load of people to the House of Lords who were key people around him. Stephen Greenhouse, who was deputy mayor for policing in his second term, now Lord Greenhouse. Daniel Moylan, a former, I don't know if he still is, he was a Kensington and Chelsea councillor. He was t- on TfL's board and he did all sorts of jobs for Boris. I never understood why. He was never particularly effective in my view. And in fact, he was lobbying for Crossrail too. And our people in the House of Lords said, who is this person? You know, he's got enough to turn us against the project rather than selling it to him. <laughs> So, you know, uh, he's got some strange people, but almost if they've been loyal to him, he sort of keeps them close. Yeah, and there's a weird lack of progression in that sense, I think, through his time as a politician, because there was a natural story you could tell about when he first became elected mayor, he appointed a whole load of unsuitable people, lots of whom then, as you say, were mired in scandal, etc., and then went, and then he appointed, as it were, the more serious grown-ups. And actually, they shepherded, you know, him through a, a a reasonable degree of basic competence in the sort of the second stage of his time as mayor. And it's why, for all that you know, people like you and me can go on for a long time about what we think was bad about his time as mayor. Nonetheless, he got re-elected relatively comfortably, and his ratings were, you know, that there was a certain competence, perhaps epitomised by the London Olympics. That someone else had done all the hard work oh, to get the Olympics. Well, let's be honest, and didn't uh, he state when he waved that yeah. flag with his jacket flapping? Yeah. I mean, on the international stage, but hardly giving the impression one would want. Yeah. But. but but there was, you know, the Olympics happened. They were administratively successful. He he at least hadn't wrecked it. But then, as prime minister, it's almost like he's reverted back to year one of Mayor Boris Johnson and. You know, once again, with a range of sort of controversial, underperforming appointments, etc. I who knows whether there will then be a second stage as prime minister that then then mirrors the second stage as as mayor. But I would have thought he would have learned from his time as mayor of, you know, don't appoint somebody like Dominic Cummings as your senior advisor. You know, come straight off. Exactly, and I I think. If he'd gone for a third term of mayor, he may have found it very hard to get re-elected, though, Mm. because actually, if you look towards the end of his term, you know, we had riots in 2011 in London, which he didn't handle well. The knife crime had Mm. been going up for the two years. I mean, I know we've seen it continue to go up and seen as an issue in Sadiq's morality, but actually it was going up in the last two years of his term and things like the affordable housing programme, he really hadn't delivered, you know, social housing in London. So I think... He would have been, uh, you know, hard pressed to get a third term. Obviously, he chose not to. And he had been 
lucky about who Labour had put up against him. And and actually, both as mayor and as prime minister, one can say that his electoral record has been rather helped by the Labour Party. You know, if you want to explain the secret of Boris Johnson's success, the Labour Party probably the is a large part of it. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Um, but thinking about sort of London more generally, I think, you know, the London of the future may be very different from the London of, say, Boris Johnson's time as mayor, courtesy of coronavirus. And you know, when we were chatting before before we started recording this podcast, I gave the example of myself. Yeah, somebody who used to go into central London to sit at, at a desk five days a week, and all of the business that that therefore gave Pret and other coffee shops and sandwich shops and so on. And I guess when normality hopefully returns in some form next year, I'll return to going into central London a bit, mm-hmm. but nothing like the extent to which I you know, did previous. And I know lots of big firms in places like Canary Wharf and so on have already been essentially made the decision that they're not going to return to having everyone in the office every day. I guess that could be quite good for public transport. I quite like the idea of London Bridge Station with 20 or 30 percent fewer people passing through it. (laughs) Obviously not good if you had earned your livelihood from one of the coffee shops near London Bridge Station. And what's so what's your take on what what London is going to look like and is it going to be a net good bad having fewer people going in to central London every day? Well there is a double whammy really we have got coronavirus and what's that's done it's accelerated probably the shift to people home working which might have taken a decade to happening overnight for those who are able to um, but also Brexit is going to have a huge impact mm. on the city of London you know they may we've seen jobs already moving out of the city it will stabilise a bit, but we may find more jobs moving to the continent and the financial services sector and so on have got to find ways to hopefully stay in the city because whilst you know your listeners will be across across um, the country, um, people think London's streets are paved with gold. They are not. Um, London generates huge amounts of money that is spent in the rest of the country. We are the engine for the country, whether we like it or not. We want, we want more investment around the country and to um, share out some of that but the reality is if London doesn't do well then the rest of the country doesn't have the money to spend as well so I think it's really important that we invest in the capital as well as the regions and um, you know Scotland and Wales as well in in the country but I I see London as changing I think we have to see this as an opportunity and I can see it really reinvigorating local high streets as people work from home I've seen setting up lots more kind of work cafe spaces, different mm. thought spaces popping up, which I saw before lockdown, but they, um, I can see, have real potential. I think people will have a better work-life balance. You know, f- for me, on certain days, and 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 parents like me, not having that terrible dash of train, hoping you're going to get to do the school pickup on time or mm. the nursery pickup, and that you're not going to be fined. You know, that pressure can be taken off, um, which actually is a really good thing. I think central London will start to see more people living there again. Mm. And I think, you know, we're proposing in the elections next year that what, some office blocks we should convert to high quality, affordable housing in the centre of the city. So actually you'll, you'll get a local high street more in some of those pockets of, of um, central London. So I think there is potential, there will be a change. City Hall is moving. Um, mm. City Hall, our, our beautiful building uh, by uh, Tower Bridge, we are moving um, from the end of 2021. 
So uh, the mayor and the assembly were based at a building called the Crystal, which is an iconic building. It's a lot smaller than City Hall. And it's um, in the borough of Newham. The only way I can describe it to people is if you got the cable car at North Greenwich, that great success of Boris Johnson's <laughs> cable car, and got it north, it lands right next to the new City Hall that we're going to have in London. Finally, the cable car will have a view other than a tourist destination. Exactly, exactly. So I may be uh, one of the few people who might commute via a cable car to work, which will be... <laughs> if I'm re-elected next year, uh, quite entertaining. But uh, so I think there will be a shift, but um, I do hope that local high streets might thrive as a result of this and central London will just slightly repurpose itself. And, and I guess in terms of the public transport network, even a relatively modest decline in the number of people commuting into central London will make a huge impact on the level of overcrowding because it's just that marginal extra effect isn't it when something is slightly over capacity that spirals so much um and i mean i i wonder what that will mean for things like crossrail too and all of that batch of public transport improvements that were thought to be five you know five to ten years away from being agreed or started a lot of them, I guess, are now looking a long way away, if ever, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, we've still got to get Crossrail open. Mm. Fabulous east to west yeah. railway line. Um, it will open at some point in 2022. Um, well over budget, well over time, but it will be amazing when it opens. And that will be... Um, that will add 10% capacity in itself to the um, tube network in London. Um, I think Crossrail 2 is still needed because it doesn't just help solve some of the crowding in London. It, it helps write down the solent to the wash, as we describe the line. So it really would help other parts of the country and the, the crowding on the, that bits of the rail network. But I do think it will take longer. We need to safeguard routes like that. Um, but you can't stop investing. And we know if you look at the past where you stopped investing in rail, the railway network across the country, the tube networks and so on, it costs far more than maintaining it every year and doing that bit by bit investment. So I'm hoping government doesn't stop all funding. And obviously we've got things like high speed too, which is really important as well. So um, there will be investment going in there, I would hope, from this government. I can't see that they're going to scrap that. But there will be a need. More people will be cycling and walking, but the population in London has been growing. The question is whether it will continue to grow. And there has been a shift of some people out of London because they found they can work from home elsewhere in the country, perhaps in a more affordable way. But, you know, the next year or two, we'll see how London rebalances itself. Yeah, And you've touched a little bit already on what the policy implications are of that and hence uh, you know, what you and colleagues will be saying in the elections coming up next May for Mayor of London and the London Assembly. Um, what's your, you know, in amongst that, and obviously there may well be other issues as well, what's your sense of what the the big sort of issues are that need to be uh, debated and mm. fought out over in those elections? Well, I mean, we're, we're pushing the high street very much. And for me, that goes back to Susan Kramer running in 2000, that she walked every high street. And I think it's, it's more important than ever and getting that environment right, um, getting the space for walking and cycling right and cycle security 
um, parking and so on, things like that. I think that's really important. Mm. Um, looking at London's economy and um, jobs, retraining. The Mayor of London has the devolved further education budget, which is new since the last um, London election. So really important to make sure that is being spent well and targeted at the right sectors to get people retrained and back into work. Um, the environment is really important. And Sadiq has talked the talk on air pollution and he's bringing in the ultra low emission zone, which we support. However, he's building a two billion pound motorway under the Thames in East London, the Silvertown Tunnel. It contradicts everything he has said on the green agenda. So we will be highlighting that. And um, I have no doubt, and I've seen Louisa, our fabulous, fabulous mayoral candidate, who's leading our campaign. Um, you know, she has already started talking about issues like road pricing. And I think um, actually, a mature debate on road pricing should come out of this election campaign because if we don't start to look at other ways we can generate income in London and try to incentivize modal shift we're going to see a growth in car use in London um, when it hasn't for years and we really need to look at that um, carefully so I think that the environment and things like that will come up very heavily um, in the campaign as well but what for me is really important about this campaign obviously I'm the um single London Assembly member for the Liberal Democrats. I'm hoping we go back to being a group. And if we do, the number two on our list is Hina Bakari, one of our Merton councillors, who would be the first Muslim woman ever elected of any party to the London Assembly. Number three, we've got Rob Blackie, who many of your listeners will know, fabulous camp mm. campaigner and member and really digital expert. Um, Not so a bad podcast guest either. Rob's been on a couple of times this year. Brilliant. Then you'll know that he's got great knowledge in economics and environment other stuff and, and brings a whole nother level. You've got Gareth Roberts, who's targeting our Southwest London seat leader of Richmond Council. Really fun to follow on Twitter. Gosh, he um, is uh, quite out there sometimes of what he puts, but, you know, bold and um, would be great addition. So I'm really hopeful we're going to get a good vote next year, good team elected, and then from there, build it for the council elections to grow the year after. So um, huge opportunities. And, uh, you know, I'm really looking forward to being able to get out and properly campaign again. We're doing what we can digitally, but um, really get out there campaigning and get uh, Lib Dem votes next year. Yeah, because absolutely, because in a way, I guess that's partly how you made your reputation in the Liberal Democrats across London, wasn't it? Was that enthusiasm for going out, campaigning just everywhere. <laughs> around Absolutely. around Absolutely. the capital well, bumping into you mark as yeah. well <laughs> yes I and that's how um and i think i changed I, well, I would say this wouldn't i but i think i changed the idea of what a london assembly member mm. could do because i'm a london-wide member i always took it on that i went to every bit of london mm. and um you know, people contact me from all over London, partly because I'm known for transport, though I do yeah. other subjects as well. I do 20% of all the assembly casework with TFL, 20%, a fifth. Yeah. Do, did I, have I told you about my favourite TFL statistic? Oh, so no. I put in a freedom of information request. It must be about 18 months ago now um, about graffiti on bus shelters. Because um, I, you know, I think we've discussed a, case, we a couple of times previously. Time. I'm convinced that TFL have got a lot slower at removing yes. graffiti and they've never been willing to quite say that in public. And I didn't word the request properly, so I didn't get you know the answer I wanted. But I realised on crunching through the numbers they'd given me that in the preceding year, 26%, so one in four of all the graffiti on bus shelter requests they had received had come from me. 
<laughs> so between you and me, we probably keep TFL very busy. But the serious point about that is, yes, it does say something about me, perhaps, but also about how often you know, loads of people see graffiti on bus shelters, that loads of people see other problems yeah. and they never end up reporting it because they don't feel that anyone will listen that anyone will get back to them and that's why I think you know your approach yeah. is such a is such a vital one to have in politics because that's what people need to feel that they can raise issues that things will happen as a result and so on and I should just say Mark this will really please you literally before I came on this uh recording with you I sent an email to TFL um, with photos of graffiti at bus stops that I had taken at the weekend. And I even copied in the managing director saying there's a real problem because I am report I've been reporting this throughout lockdown and stops are absolutely covered mm. and it's really bringing down neighborhoods and um, asking them to do a blitz on it. So I literally Excellent. did that press send before I clicked yeah. on this link for our call. I always think. I think that some of the smartest people in terms of understanding how public services are currently working are graffiti artists or criminals, I guess, depending on how you view them, but people who put graffiti on things. Because I think it's really notable that where graffiti appears shifts depending on who is currently good or bad at removing it. I, so I think it's not just that TfL has got slower. I think people who are going out there to look to put graffiti on something know the TFL was slower and that's where you put your tag if you want your tag to be there in three weeks time yeah. uh, so that's my tip for anyone by it my poor son and husband I'm like stop wait a minute I need to take a photo of this um bus shelter <laughs> they're used to it they used yeah. to it. I, I, I mean, imagine what the pair of us would be like walking down the street I just anyone with us would be endlessly frustrated three hours on we've made it 10 meters down the road exactly <laughs> I, mean, I mean that's I mean it's it's a it's a big issue. It annoys us both, but relatively, it's um, relatively it's small when you compare to you know the issue I have just um, exposed and got resolved. Where for eight months TfL didn't provide guided physical assistance for people with disabilities on the transport network. So all the train operating companies have guided blind and visually impaired people. They push them onto trains they found the right PPE removable disposable yeah. sleeves gloves so on and TfL had refused for eight months and when I raised this with the mayor of London I've been on radio four about it he refused to apologize his commissioner had apologized and said he was embarrassed by it it started again last week but he refused to apologize what sort of mayor of London is that who doesn't care that for eight months, people with disabilities weren't able to use the transport network that he provides. That's not good shocking. enough, not good enough. And uh, I'll continue to push some of those bigger issues mm. obviously, as well as the ones that um, irritate us. Yeah, no, that's a really good reminder of the importance of why we need to get you and many of your colleagues elected next May. Absolutely, um, I don't I want to be by myself again. I want to have a Lib Dem group so that we can just, you know, just add so much more air air time to everything and just I get six minutes a month to question the mayor of London six minutes a month get another member that's 12 get another member that's 18 you know it the, the impact you can have as a bigger group is 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 huge and um, we really can and uh, be the true opposition to um, this mayor of London 
Excellent. On that note, uh, let's wrap things up. So thank you very much for your time, Caroline. Thank uh, you, Mark. Listeners can find Caroline on Twitter at Caroline Pigeon. I'm sure she will enjoy your graffiti on bus stop shelters photos, but also, of course, other, other substantive issues as well, as Caroline's mentioned. But I'm sure she'll be only too happy to hear from people on that. You can find me at Mark Pack and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Look out in the show notes for some follow-up links to what we've discussed, including the great high street campaigning song that Susan Cromer had when she ran for London Mayor. I will try and find that on YouTube and include that in the show notes. So thank you very much, Caroline, and thank you very much to everyone for listening. Mm -hmm.